Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Thank you so much for coming back. As you know, uh, we've been talking about qualities of a good student the last few weeks. Last week was heedfulness. And this week I want to talk about appropriate attention. Appropriate attention. Appropriate attention is huge in the Dharma. And I think it's one of those concepts that we kind of take advantage of. We just sort of take for granted because we focus so much on mindfulness that appropriate attention kind of gets absorbed into the term mindfulness and we don't often distinguish the two. So what I'm going to try to do today is talk about appropriate attention and talk about it in light of the Four Noble Truths because it's the Four Noble Truths that really gives appropriate attention its meaning. So that's, I think, my main take-home for tonight is to really be able to see the connection between the Four Noble Truths and what the Buddha refers to as appropriate attention. And I think it's important to remember that all of these skillful qualities that the Buddha is talking about as prereqs for the Eightfold Path or success for the spiritual seeker fuse together at a certain point in practice and they become the energy of skillful effort. So all of these qualities we've been talking about over the last few Dharma talks have been oriented to skillful effort. What kind of effort does a student have to put in to the training, to the experience, in order to have the awakening? And that's where this all ties in together. So as I said, next week we'll be talking about how it all fits, but we're going to finish up with appropriate attention. So the Four Noble Truths are what give appropriate attention its meaning. The Four Noble Truths technically define appropriate attention. It tells us what is appropriate and is inappropriate for the Dharma student. So let's go through the Four Noble Truths and really dive into what the Buddha had in mind for each Noble Truth, and then we'll talk about how attention is used and inspired by these Four Noble Truths, how appropriate attention basically takes appropriate attention and puts it into practice, right? It's it's a placing of the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths into the world. So we take attention and we move attention and we do things with attention in a particular way with this end goal of being liberation from suffering. And this is how the Four Noble Truths become present in actual, like rubber, rubber meets the road practicality. So you'll see what I mean in a second. So we know the Four Noble Truths, but let's take a dive. Our first Noble Truth, of course, is that suffering is a natural part of the human experience. And it's interesting because the first noble truth often seems so trite, right? To say that there's suffering is kind of a a no-brainer. But the Buddha is saying more than just the fact of suffering in the human experience. The reason the Buddha starts with suffering as a natural part of what it is to be human in this domain of experience is because for the most part, our hearts and minds want to turn away from suffering. 
our natural inclination is not to lean into suffering, but to see suffering as an enemy, as something that is to be pushed away, denied, distracted from, run away from, whatever we want to do. Our natural inclination is not to say, oh, there's some discontent, please give me more. So because our natural inclination is to turn away, the Buddha puts the first noble truth of suffering at the top to bring us back into the reality of the human experience in a very real, intangible way. So it's not kind of an off-the-cuff like, oh, by the way, they're suffering. Yeah, yeah, they're suffering. It's reminding us that there is suffering and we don't like it so much, right? And it's a fact of the human experience that we wish was not a fact of human experience. And we're constantly pushing away from this fact. That's why it starts at the top of the, of the Four Noble Truths. The four, uh, First Noble Truth really invites us to abandon this inner voice that says, this shouldn't be happening. There shouldn't be dot, dot, dot. Don't you wake up some days and think, oh my God, we shouldn't have climate change. Like, why couldn't have we have fended this off or prevented it or changed it or corrected it? Or you see poverty and homelessness, big now in Portland, Oregon, right? And you look around and you think, how, how is this so? How is there so much homelessness? This shouldn't be. The Buddha is inviting us to begin our journey by shifting that, shifting that emphasis of this shouldn't be to, wow, this is what happens in human experience. We have suffering, right? We have discontent. We have poverty. We have climate change. And leaning into the truth of it with more of an acceptance rather than a pushing away. So that's our first noble truth, this encouragement to touch back down into the truth of the pain of the human experience. Now, of course, if the path ends there, <laughs> it's a sucky path. We don't want any part of it. So it moves on to the second noble truth, which is kind of a relief. We're like, oh, okay, there's more than one noble truth. We got a second act. So the second act, of course, is that there's a cause of suffering. There's a cause of suffering. Again, <laughs> one could say, well, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I can list you 12 causes of suffering off the top of my head just from Monday, you know, of this week. So it's not, it's not intended to be like, oh, yeah, there's a cause of suffering. It's, it's more powerful than that. When the Buddha says there's a cause of suffering, what he's saying is that suffering is not arbitrary or random, right? It's not just falling from the sky like rain, right? Because you know how sometimes you wake up and you move through your day and it like, the world is like assaulting you with dukkha. It's like, this is breaking, that is breaking, this is falling apart, I'm sick, this person's sick. You know, it's like, you, it just feels like either the world is out to get you at a certain point, right? And the Buddha is saying, there's a cause to suffering, but it's not an arbitrary cause, right? The Buddha encouraged us to think that the cause of suffering is actually not these outside circumstances that appear to be attacking us, so to speak, right? To be like breaking everything in sight. And the Buddha also reminds us that we're not being punished, right? Sometimes the suffering feels like, why me? Like, why am I being punished by dot, 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 right? Why can't this be happening to somebody else? You know, not that you want it to happen to somebody else, but you certainly don't want it to happen to you. So this, this second noble truth shifts our perspective slightly and the second noble truth invites us to say, okay, there's a cause of suffering. It's not arbitrary. We can know what the cause is. It's not suffering. You know, the universe is not smiting me. 
right? And then this flows right into the third noble truth, which is there's a cure for suffering. So the second and third noble truths are in tandem. The second noble truth, there's a cause. And the third noble truth, there's relief. There's a cure for the ailment. And again, we can see the third noble truth as kind of like a no-brainer. It's like, okay, yeah, there's suffering and then there's a way out of suffering. But the third noble truth is really important because even when we know the cause of something, that doesn't necessarily mean we know what the cure is. When the Buddha set out on his journey, right, he was asking, is there an end to suffering? That was a question and it wasn't rhetorical. Is there an end to suffering? And so let's suppose the Buddha had his experience he found out, okay, suffering everywhere. Okay, suffering is this fact of human experience. Maybe I can use suffering as a doorway to freedom. And he finds out that there is a way to cure suffering, except the cure isn't accessible by to humans, right? Like, let me give you a more medical example. There was a time when we knew that HIV caused AIDS, but that didn't mean we had a cure. We understood the cause, the causal connection, but that doesn't mean we could prevent it. So when the Buddha is saying, look, I found the cause and found the cure, that's a celebration. It's a celebration of our ability to not only know what the causal connection is, but that there is, in fact, something that can relieve the pain. Because, you know, sometimes I think, let's suppose, oh, I didn't write anything down funny in this moment, but like, let's suppose that the cause of suffering, of all human suffering, had to do with your, like, your career, Right? And that if you're able to have a particular career, that means you'd be ultimately happy. And human beings who were able to have that career could be happy and free, and those who couldn't, wouldn't be. And that was the cause. The absolute cause of, the, of human suffering was having a particular career. And let's say the career was like being a dentist, right? And so those who were dentists could be happy and free, and those who couldn't, you were just screwed. That was just it. Just second noble truth, they're suffering. And you don't get to have the cure because you're not a dentist. So when the Buddha says, hey, I found the cause and I found the cure, that is a huge celebration for himself, right? He's really saying, hey, hey, I got this. I know what's causing it and I can tell you what the cure is. And the even greater news, right, which is our fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path, is this. Not only is there a cure, I can teach it to you. It's repeatable and it's universal. So the fourth noble truth, which is there is a path out of suffering, is an, again a celebration of our ability to be free. It's the Buddha saying, I found the cause, I found the cure, and I've been there. I've created a map and you can follow the map as well, right? You can do this. So when we think of the fourth noble truth, what it's really invoking is this sense that Others have completed the journey, and I can complete the journey as well, and the instructions to do so are handed down, right? So we have sort of three noble truths and the path out. That's kind of how the, fourth, the four noble truths kind of fit together as a family. So when you look at these four noble truths, the Buddha is discovering something, right? And he's sharing with his students this model of like, hey, I got this, and I'm going to show you what this is. So that's where the four noble truths really 
shine, if you will. It's not just a list of obvious, obvi hey, there's suffering in the world. There's some causes to the suffering. Oh, there's some ways out of it. It's not that boring. <laughs> I would encourage you to think of the Four Noble Truths as like a big announcement, right, of a discovery of someone's journey that almost killed him, right? And he brought back the information. It was like, hey, I got it. I got the map. Here it is. So that's the Four Noble Truths. It's a celebration. Now, when we look at the Noble Truths, let's go deeper into them and see how they connect to appropriate attention, because that's really what we're talking about here is appropriate attention. So there's sort of three keys to the Noble Truths. I'm going to frame it this way. There's sort of three keys, three dimensions to the Four Noble Truths. And as I said earlier, the first one is to always remember that the Four Noble Truths exist because the mind does not like to deal with suffering. It doesn't like it. It's programmed to push away. So that's the first big insight is that we don't spend enough time with suffering to understand its nature. And that was a big insight for the Buddha because the Buddha turned towards suffering and was equanimous enough to the experience of the suffering to see that he was playing a role in the creation and fabrication of the dukkha. And the only way that happened was that he moved his attention towards it. So the Four Noble Truths is this invitation to take our attention that is mostly outwardly energized and to move it towards the suffering. That's the huge difference in this path, right? So the first part of the Four, uh, the four Noble Truths is take your attention and move it towards the discontent. And most of the time, of course, we do that like, okay, I'm going to be aware of breathing to be in the present moment. And the mind's like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to be distracted. I want to go do this. I want to go do that. So the first key to the Four Noble Truths is just reminding ourselves that we're moving attention into the suffering, into the dukkha, against the stream. So that's the first big, big key. And then the second one is that the cause of suffering is in our own consciousness. The big thing with the second noble truth and the third, but the second being the cause of suffering, is that suffering is not caused by the outside circumstances. It's caused from our reactivity, the heart-mind reaction to the present moment. So the reason that is so important is if it turned out that the Buddha discovered that suffering was caused by something on the outside, we're kind of screwed because we can't control the outside. All we can control is what's inside our hearts, what's inside our minds. So if the discovery was, hey, there's a cause of suffering, but it's on this mountain over here outside yourself and only those with hiking gear can get it, that wouldn't have been such a celebration. But instead, the idea was, oh, it's inside of ourselves. That is great news because we can control that. The only thing we have jurisdiction over is the inside how we respond, how we react. We can't control the outside. We can influence it, certainly, but we can't control it. So the second noble truth, this key, is that, as we know, pain is unavoidable, but suffering, suffering is self-created. That's awesome because we can uncreate it. We can unfabricate the experience. That's the good news of that part of the path. So there's two things here connected to attention. One, we have to move attention to the suffering, right? Two, we move attention to the role we play in the moment-to-moment -moment creation of our experience. So now we start to see that the Four Noble Truths 
are kind of about what we do with attention. This is a huge part of the Buddha's insight. I'll go into it a little bit deeper, but there's another key that I think is really important. The Eightfold Path is a training both in intention and attention. The intention to be free is followed by moving our attention into skillful ways to get that freedom to happen, right? And the third noble truth and the fourth noble truth, that there's a cure and a cause, says that if we put skillful effort into particular behaviors, if we think a certain way, view the world in a certain way, love in a certain way, connect deeply in Sangha, right? When we do these types of things, then there is a shift in consciousness and then there's a liberation that occurs. So what the Buddha's realizing in the Four Noble Truths is that where we place our attention focuses the actions that cause suffering. So the Four Noble Truths say, hey, we got to pay attention to our attention. Where is our attention resting? What is it doing? What are we focusing on? What are our values in our life? So the Four Noble Truths invokes this invitation to pay attention to intention and attention because our actions, our speech, our thoughts, our views are co-creating the suffering. And if we're not attentive to those things, we're going to miss it. We can't catch the mind in the act. So attention is so important to these four noble truths being a workable path. So this is what we see. This is really what the Buddha discovered. He discovered that the untrained mind, right, an untrained heart-mind, mostly operates non-consciously. And an untrained mind naturally believes that the highest form of happiness is the sensual world. The untrained mind looks at the sensual world and says, I have an option to be in pain, or I can drink a beer, smoke some weed, distract myself with Amazon, go to Netflix. The untrained mind naturally believes that the highest form of happiness is somehow just pushing away the pain and distracting into sensual pleasures, escaping into pleasure. So it programs itself to crave sensuality and to be averse to anything to the contrary. Another thing the Buddha sees with his meditation is that the untrained heart and the untrained mind diverts its attention continuously away from unpleasant sensations. It's constantly diverting the attention. You know that feeling you have with the hindrances? Diversion of attention. Diversion of it. Oh, wandering off, wandering off, wandering off. We have programmed the mind to move attention outward, away from the present moment, and into whatever, <laughs> into any place we can hide. Now, similarly, what the Buddha sees is that the untrained heart and mind turns itself outward to find answers and it turns outward to find some causal connection or blame of the suffering. So it looks outside of itself. Its natural tendency is not to look inside for answers. The natural tendency is to go outside and blame the external circumstances for the suffering. Now, we know that the pain is caused by external, uh, external circumstances, but the dukkha is caused by things going on inside. So this natural tendency for the mind to go outward, bring attention away from the present moment, 
is part of the challenge. That's the discovery that he, that he sees. So when we walk the Eightfold Path, the, the person who walks the Eightfold Path, the spiritual seeker who takes these steps, is looking at life from a different perspective. The meditator changes their value system and says, my highest aspiration is freedom from suffering. My highest aspiration is compassion, joy, living in integrity, living an ethical life, living in compassionate community. And so the meditator trains the heart mind to change the value system, which means we direct our attention inward, inward to practice. Instead of outward, we make this commitment to move our attention from its natural wandering state to the inward journey of the present moment experience. And so a person trained in the Dharma, a person committed to or believing in one could say, or agreeing to the hypothesis of the Four Noble Truths, like, okay, maybe there's an end to suffering, let me test this out. So a person who trains in the Dharma then believes that the highest happiness lies within. That's the presumption that we are agreeing that the highest happiness is only going to be found on the inward journey. So we turn attention inward. And then the person trained in the Dharma consciously diverts attention away from distraction. We train ourselves to let go of the wandering mind, which is all the distractions, and we value the present moment experience, right? The pleasure of mindfulness, the pleasure of the inward journey. So the untrained mind naturally wants to be distracted. Where the trained heart and mind of the Dharma, it's following the Four Noble Truths, brings attention away from the wandering mind and into presence. That's the orientation that we agree to or we try to walk, right? Another thing that the trained heart and mind does, it befriends suffering. As I said earlier, it turns awareness towards the pain. The more mature the meditator is in practice, the more the meditator sees dukkha as an opportunity for awakening. One of the things that we see, the more you practice and the more you see that awakening is possible, something happens in your life and you're like, oh, it's a great opportunity to practice. I'm having a really bad day. This is a great opportunity for loving kindness. This is a great opportunity for self-compassion. We begin to take our attention and look for opportunities for awakening. The distracted mind, the untrained mind, the mind that's not walking the path, is not looking for opportunities for awakening. It's attending to distraction and anything else it can get its greedy little hands on. But the meditator lives with this sense of skilled, appropriate attention and looks for opportunities to bring attention to a skillful moment of practice. So that's where appropriate attention really comes online, right? Where we willingly move through our day. It's like um, appropriate attention is like a lighthouse, right? And we're looking at the rot. We're looking for the danger. We're looking for the possibilities of the shipwreck and we're going to prevent it. That's where the attention of appropriateness really lies in the Dharma. So one other thing in the Four Noble Truths that relates to attention is just our commitment to consciously seek joy from sources other than the outward energy. So the meditator makes a commitment to practice turning attention to finding joy 
from mindfulness, from the jhanas, from loving kindness, from generosity. And that is a way we use appropriate attention. We look for opportunities for pleasure that are not dependent on outside circumstances, that don't harm ourselves or others, and are long-lasting or longer-lasting than the sense temporary sense pleasures that we usually gravitate towards. Appropriate attention is what brings the Four Noble Truths into the world. Otherwise, it's just a theory about something, right? Otherwise, it's just a list of obvious statements about suffering, right? It's just like one, two, three, four, okay, right? It's just something that you graffiti on a wall. Four Noble Truths, you know? So the Four Noble Truths give rise to appropriate attention, right? It gives rise to heedfulness. It gives rise to truthfulness. These Four Noble Truths energize as appropriate attention. So any one of us at any given time that is moving our attention into the factors of Dharma, moving attention towards mindfulness, moving our attention to the enlightenment factors, that's appropriate attention. That's what it's called. So the formal definition of appropriate attention is seeing and acting from the Four Noble Truths. That's whenever we are acting out of the Four Noble Truths, consciously and intentionally, that's what the Buddha calls appropriate attention. And anytime our attention strays from that and gets distracted and gets talked into the going somewhere with one of the hindrances, that's the inappropriate attention, right? Our attention has been moved sort of off topic, if you will, off path. So skillful attention, appropriate attention, always occurs when we are in alignment with the Four Noble Truths. That's how the Four Noble Truths live in our practice, through appropriate attention. I'll give you one uh, textual example, one that we talk about quite a bit, but I think it, it applies here for sure. When the Buddha is talking to Rahula in his famous passage on explaining uh, how to learn, he talks to Rahula about karma, he says this about appropriate attention to his son. He says, if you're going to practice appropriate attention, you are going to bring appropriate attention to three parts of any action. Your intention to act, what's happening as you're acting, and the consequences of the action. The intention to act during the action and the consequences. And he tells his son, if you have appropriate attention at any of those three parts, and you see that there's any slightest bit of harm being done to yourself or others, abandon the action immediately. Abandon the action immediately. And do that as quickly as possible. And if you think about it, that's in part what we're doing in our meditation. The moment we feel our mind starting to wander and get distracted, we abandon that. We abandon the lust, the craving, the anger, the greed, and we bring ourselves back to the present moment. So the Buddha is inviting us to say appropriate attention is a moment-to-moment -moment experience where we ask ourselves, in this moment, what is skillful? Where is the dukkha? And what can I do to either let go of something or fabricate something to decrease the suffering right here, right now, in this present moment? And what's interesting is when the Buddha says this to his son, it implies mindfulness, right? Like, you need mindfulness to catch the mind in the act. And so this is where mindfulness and skillful attention connect. In order to see 
intention <laughs> arising before an action. Good luck with that. <laughs> In order to see that, you have to be practicing mindfulness pretty regularly to see, oh wow, I'm starting to feel anger towards this person and I'm about to say something really rude. I'm not going to do that because my commitment is skillful speech. Like that, being able to see that process requires mindfulness. We have to be grounded long enough in the present moment to really see what's happening in the mind. And so mindfulness gets us into the present moment and appropriate attention then seeks out what to do with the mindfulness. So mindfulness grounds us in the present moment and appropriate attention decides what to do with that presence, where to put itself, what object to focus on and what to do with the object. So for example, let us say you're experiencing some pain. Let's say you're meditating and there's some back pain. Okay, pain arises and you're starting to get agitated. Mindfulness can hold the space, like okay, I'm just gonna be mindful of it. But then you ask yourself, where should I put my attention? You have multiple options. You can go back to the breath and just be with the breath and see if the pain will go away. You can bring your attention to the suffering itself and to experience it as bodily sensations. That's another version of appropriate attention. You could add a mental fabrication and imagine the breath going into the tension and loosening it. That's appropriate attention. So mindfulness is not really what frees us. Appropriate attention is what does the freeing. Mindfulness gets us into the space and allows us to see clearly what's happening and then we direct our attention appropriately to freedom. So that's the difference between appropriate attention and mindfulness. As mindfulness opens the door, appropriate attention walks into the room. And they have to both be operating in order for that release to happen. So most of you have been doing this for a while. And I'm going to just draw a couple connections so you can see. Appropriate attention has an obvious connection to investigation the investigation enlightenment factor, right? You can see its connection to skillful effort because appropriate intention, appropriate attention embedded in it, not interfering with it, but embedded in it are the skillful questions, right? In this moment, what should I attend to? Should I be with my breath? Should I be with my body? Is loving kindness the, the mood of the day? Is that what's gonna help me in this moment? Do I need to be practicing generosity or death contemplation? So appropriate attention really is about moving our attention around skillfully to seeing where we can make headway. Appropriate attention looks to see what is the next layer of suffering? What would be the most skillful means in this moment? So we talk about skillful means, we talk about investigation. Appropriate attention is the movement of awareness to understand those things. That's, it's a, I always say cousin, it's a cousin of those phenomenon. So that's another way you can ground this in your practice. Two other things I'll say before we close. I want to read a quote. This is a quote, I mean, it's a simple quote, but sometimes I like to, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know what this is. This is something in my own brain, but I always feel like, if I can quote the sutta, that makes it real. Otherwise, I've just made it up. <laughs> so I always have to find a quote somewhere just to make sure I'm not just making stuff up. So this is, I'm like, okay, good. I'm not off track. Okay, so appropriate attention. Here's a quote. 
Oh, I didn't write down the abbreviation from where the sutta is. Anyway, I promise you this is an actual sutta. <laughs> okay. With regard to internal factors, I don't envision any other single factor like appropriate attention as doing so much for a monk in training who has not attained the heart's goal but remains intent on the unsurpassed safety from the yoke. A monk who attends appropriately abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. I like how he says, I don't envision any other single factor. I don't envision any other single factor. So high praise for appropriate attention, for the fact that it's what's moving the mindfulness around, so to speak, and finding the object of concentration and doing that work. One other quote, which I think is really interesting. So I know myself and other students often ask, what happens after what happens after enlightenment, right? Like, do you just hang out? Like, are you just sitting in your ham hammock? Like, what does the what does the arhant do? You know, like when you're when you kind of put all that effort in and like you figured it out. Like, I mean, do you hit the self help circuit? I mean, what do you do when you're enlightened? Like, where do you go? Do you just go hang out at a soup kitchen? I mean. It, it's one of those things that we often ask ourselves, like, what is the mind and heart of, of that being? What do you do after the fact? And so here's something very interesting. Appropriate attention is the expression of the Four Noble Truths. And after enlightenment, appropriate attention is still something that the Arhant does. So it stays with us all the way through the path. That's how important it is as a practice. It's in the beginning when we're just getting to know the noble truths, it works every moment. We're working with the hindrances and going through our jhanas and doing our precepts. And it is also there after the fact. So I wanted to read the quote that describes this fact. Um, it's a little, little hard of a quote to, to get, but I'm going to read it anyway because I thought it was important. So here's the quote. And again, I apologize. I usually have my quotes all laid out with the abbreviations of where I'm getting them. But you'll just have to trust me that uh, this is a real one. An arahant should attend in an appropriate way to these five clinging aggregates as inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a dissolution, an emptiness, a not-self. Although for an arahant there is nothing further to do and nothing to add to what has been done, Still, these things, when developed and pursued, lead both to a pleasant abiding in the here and now and to mindfulness and alertness. So even for the Arhant, even though what needed to be done has been done, there is still a choice where you place your attention. And even the Arhant makes the choice for appropriate attention to rest in mindfulness, to rest in alertness to continue to acknowledge the aggregates have been let go of and are not self. So there's still appropriate attention and inappropriate attention. The mind can still go places. <laughs> go places. Anyway, I thought that was interesting because I'm always looking out for passages that talk about what happens after enlightenment since there's so few and far between. Now that doesn't like really capture what the life is like for an arhat, but just in case you were wondering, you'll still be required to have appropriate attention even after you do all do all the work in case you were wondering. 
All right, my friends, thank you for your kind attention. I appreciate your presence here and allowing me to share the Dharma with you. Almost at the hour. Yay. Well, my friends, for those who have to move attention to other things like prepping for the workday and tending to children, thank you so much for your kind attention. Thanks for joining us again for Wednesday Wake Up. We'll see you next week. Those who can stay, let's do some meta. attention held gently in this first foundation of the body. Take a few intentional, long, slow, deep breaths. Notice how the body feels with deep breathing. Let's bring some wakefulness. Let's bring some attention to the mood. We sat for 35 minutes, had a long Dharma talk. What does it feel like to be sitting and breathing in this moment? Maybe some fatigue, maybe some restlessness. Maybe consciousness is a little foggy. Or maybe there's a sense of ease and joy and relaxation. We just honor the truth of the mood, bringing attention to that which is so in this moment. And let's bring awareness once again to the part of the body called the heart. Take a couple breaths and imagine breath energy filling and enlivening our hearts. Let us breathe in some grace, some well-being, some ease, some self-compassion. With awareness grounded in body, attuned to our hearts, let's conclude this evening by answering this question. If you could wish anything for all beings, and know this wish would come to pass, what would you wish in this moment? Invite that wish into the room with each breath.
may all beings know true joy, true compassion, and true freedom in this very life. Good to see y'all. Thanks so much for stopping by. Next week we'll put it all together. <laughs> Thanks, my friends. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.